you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 12 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, as always, good to see you. And uh, let's reflect on last week's show. We had a wonderful discussion with solicitor Floor McCarthy, the co-founder of Solicitors Growth, a network for solicitors providing CPD and support services. Wow, is that man innovative. Very Great response. The solicitors loved that, didn't they? They loved that. They loved that. Well, today we're still on campus in University College Cork uh, and we're moving into the world of criminal law with one of the country's best-known defence solicitors, Frank Buttermer. He's probably best known, I suppose, for his relationship with Ian Bailey, uh, representing Ian Bailey over the years. Uh, But there's a lot more strings to Frank's bow, I think, and we're going to discuss those. Uh, It's a great interview, folks. Stay with us. But first, we're going to discuss three cases which have been identified from the the Decisis website by your good self, Mark. Uh, The first tonight, we're going to start with the bodice-ripping topic of rateable valuations. Uh, Maybe I'm being a little bit unfair because this is quite an interesting case and it concerns the valuation of land and at what point do you value land? In, In this case, the land was kind of a field, I presume. And then had it was, been a field. Ha, had been a field, and then it was a field with a wind farm on it. Exactly. So at what point do you value this piece of land? Yeah. So what happened here was the Commissioner for Revaluation is the, the person or the body responsible for uh, fixing the rate of valuation. And they fixed the, 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 in this case, as you said, it was a wind farm. The valuation date was October 2015, where there was no, I don't know if the wind farm was being built, but certainly it wasn't operational because it wasn't operational until 2016. In September 2017. But the, the Commissioner for Valuation made a decision to, um, to value it based on its 2017 valuation rather than at the time of the valuation date because the valuation didn't take place until 2017. And this was challenged by the owners of the wind farm and it ended up before Mr Justice Simons in the High Court. Yes. And Mr Justice Simons looked at this and said, no, you're, you're, you're supposed to value as at the valuation date. And he made specific reference to the fact that there was provision in the legislation to revise evaluation if there was a, an event that changed the valuation of the land. So, so the valuation date in this case was when it was just a, a humble field. It was a mere humble field with no wind farm and two years later, obviously, it was extremely valuable. So slightly um, worth a little bit more, I would have thought. a bit more, I would imagine, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that is the case, I should say, of Quilter Cho versus the Commissioners for Valuation. Uh, and again, as you said, a decision of Mr Justice Simons. Okay, I think we can only squeeze in one case, Mark, because uh, the Frank Buttermer interview runs a little bit and it's, it's well worth listening to folks. Uh, but this is is a case where it, it's kind of about practice and procedure. Is that is that a fair enough comment for me? Yeah. Uh, it's a decision of Miss Justice Stack and she had a lot of work to do in this decision, a lot of yeah. things to consider. The backstory concerns a family home in which the borrower or mortgagor had defaulted on his loan. The property had been repossessed but the plaintiff decided he was going to attempt to take back possession of the premises by force. And he was going to use an angle grinder, rev it up and seek to obtain entry through a steel door. He was going to chop it down with the angle grinder. Uh, And however, he notified the guards, maybe he had a... In advance. In advance that this is what he intended to do. They turned up, they arrested him. 
He says a little bit too much force was used. He ended up in hospital as a result, all of that sort of stuff. Anyway, it eventually went to court, but he didn't just sue the guards. He sued a plethora of, of parties. Yeah. So, uh, so can you take us through it? Well, the particular issue here that he was objecting to was the fact that that, that he had mortgaged the property with one financial institution and that loan, as is quite common, got sold onto another financial institution. And an order was made by the county registrar giving possession of the property. But by the time... but that that application was made in the name of the first financial institution. And by the time that order was made, the second financial institution owned the loan. So the, the point was, in fact, that the, 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 the order had been made in the, the name of the wrong body. And the borrower was clearly alive to this because this was the reason why he went back, back into the property um, forcibly re-entered. He was arrested by the guards. Um, he says that excessive force was used such that he ended up in hospital. Um, and as you said, he then sued everybody involved. He sued the county registrar who made the order. He sued the guards. He sued he, he sued two other guards who had prosecuted him unsuccessfully in the district court. He all, he sued um, he sued both financial institutions. So, Miss Justice Stack was called upon to decide whether these proceedings could continue. Exactly, an application and she said certain certain ones couldn't. Yeah. She, but certain she, ones could. Very exactly. difficult. Well, yeah. you're, you're doing a brilliant job explaining this, Mark. Well, so so an application was made to dismiss the entire case. Um, and she went through each one and she said, the case against County Registrar can't succeed because um, the, the, he had a right of appeal and he's out of time to judicially review it. The action against the guards could proceed on the basis that it was a personal injuries action and this needs to be determined. The action against the prosecuting guards couldn't be because there was no evidence of malice behind the decision to prosecute. Um, and then the action against the the body, the, the financial institution that went into possession could proceed even though it was likely that it wouldn't succeed because it was at least a statable case because they went in on foot of an order that they shouldn't have gone, that, that was, wasn't made in their name. Wow. Okay. Okay. Could, could you mention the one in the middle again? <laughs> Sorry about that. Brilliantly, brilliantly explained. I don't know how you take in that detail. It's fantastic, Mark. Okay, back shortly with solicitor Frank Buttermer. Silence in the fifth court. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio Frank Buttermer, one of our best known uh, criminal solicitors, I suppose, Frank, you're, you're nationwide, but you're based here in Cork and we're delighted that you came in to talk to us. Uh, and you had a busy day today. I know you were rushing from court, were you? I was, Peter. District, circuit? District, primarily, and a few other operations as well. We had some significant matters in Tralee today as well, where people were unfortunately charged with rather serious offences down there. So I had to organise that as well with other staff. We have a relatively busy operation and it does yes. keep us going. And you do more than crime. In fairness, I'm pigeonholing yeah, you a little bit. You do a bit more than crime as well, don't you, I Frank? Do, I do civil litigation. I do, you know... Yeah, all that, all that sort of stuff. We, we, we love the crime. I'm going to ask you a lot oh, yeah. about that. I do okay. a lot of different things. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into some of your, your well-known cases and to talk about kind of, you know, crime and how it's dealt with in Cork and nationwide, uh, can we go back to where it all began? Where is Frank Buttermer from? I know you're a Cork man. And how did you get into this legal game? I'm from about 500 yards up the road in Magazine Road, a little place called Kilcray Park, which is about literally uh, so three or 400 yards from the main gates of UCC. And I was born and reared up there, not far from here, as I say. My mum and dad were teachers, so I went to my mother's primary school, Glasheen Boys National, and I went to my father's 
secondary school where he was teaching. He dragged me across the river up to the north side, which sort of toughened me up. And I did my secondary education up there. And when I was going through the North Monastery, I heard that there was this career called law. And I had no idea what it was, but it sounded vaguely interesting. All of my other family, my mum and dad and all my brothers and sisters were actually teachers as it eventually transpired. So you were going to go rogue. So I and it was nothing to do with Perry Mason. <laughs> I was black sheeping. And uh, so my father was frowning upon this concept, but I said, look, let's go for it. So I came to UCC in 1974, this very building. And I studied the for the BCL. Well, study, I use that term loosely. I attended UCC where I had a really, really great three years, made some great lifelong friends, graduated in 1977. But during those times, you could become an apprentice while you were still in college. So I got through the whole system from the age of 17. I did it all in four and a half years. So I was qualified as a solicitor at the very, very young and inexperienced age of 21 and a half or give or take. And who but did you who did you train with? What firm did you train with? I trained with, train with a firm called O'Flynn Exams and Partners. Here in Cork City? Yeah, uh, they did their best to get rid of me, but I, I hung in there and I, I, I escaped with my reputation vaguely intact. Uh, Mr. Faulkner O'Driscoll, who's still practicing, and God bless him, was my master, as they used to call it back then. He and I would have had different views about legal practice. He was a very hardworking guy, and i got to tell you, I was not. So I, I graduated and finished my, my, what do you call that thing, solicitor's course in 1981. And uh, from Dublin, I was up in Dublin in the in the old, not Blackhall place, it was preceding Blackhall place. It was a great spot called Earlsford Terrace, actually, where the Law Society used to have its educational activities. So you did about sort of, you know, a year and a half or so up in Dublin, which was really good. We, I lived in a in accommodation, shall we call it, in Rathgar, and really enjoyed <laughs> that as well. And then I promptly decided Could that you I was like a real Dublin solicitor yeah, there. Rathgar. And I then said, oh, I don't want to so, give my so, life So when, when did the nameplate, when did the, the brass plate with Frank Buttermer and Associates or whatever you call yourself, when did that happen? Um, when that did you happened. go out on your own? Well, yeah, I, I opened my own business in 1986. 1986. Okay. I had been a, a, like, a tender age of what, 26, 27? 27-ish, something like that. Yeah, 20, okay. And why did you go out on your own at that stage? Courageous. I always wanted to. I, I never wanted to be, uh, shall we say, anything other than, to, to the best that I could be now, sort of in, in charge of my own operation. I was in partnership to, to some extent with a guy with whom I had been working as a uh, like an employee. He had various operations around Ireland, Munster particularly. And I wanted to, I'm kind of, I'm very attached to my home city. I had lived in California for a couple of years, but I wanted to be my own boss as it were. So I just took a flyer and opened a business and, you know, it's been on the go since. Okay, very good. And did you start doing crime at that stage? Now, I know you do civil litigation, as you, as you pointed yeah. out, but was crime the thing that attracted you? Was that what you started yeah, doing first? Yeah, it Frank? was. What I did was when I, when I began to work, I took two years out after I qualified, started to work in 81, and the nature of the operation that I was working in was a, like a legal office, which did a lot of litigation, and litigation involved attending the district court, and I, I became the district court attendee for the office, just by the way it worked in the office and I began to like it and, you know, did it. It was a country practice, actually. And it was like from San Francisco to, to Canturk, County Cork, which is a bit of a culture shock. But I began to do the district courts locally and maybe a bit further than locally eventually. And then came to Cork in 86, you know, my, to my own hometown, and then continued to do, to do court cases and 
that sort of stuff doesn't happen. You don't become a, like, <laughs> you know, a kind of a, a good operator immediately. You become a good operator if, if, you want, if one wants to call oneself that by acquiring experience, one's own activity, and then observational activity, attending your own courts and maybe going to the higher courts for barristers and, you know, that kind of... And when you, when you started, let's say, in the, in the mid-80s or whatever, like what sort of crime were you dealing with? Is, is it very different to what you're dealing totally. with today? It's 100% totally different across the boards in terms of the nature of criminal offending, in terms of the nature of criminal practice, in terms of volume, in terms of the nature of the people who you represent, I mean, it's so different that people who are now coming into it or who have been in it even for the last 10 or 15 years would have no idea of what it was like back then and the way in which you would have to do your work back then as opposed to the different types of activities in which one presently engages. It's chalk and cheese. Can okay. you give us some examples there? I mean, in terms of the types of offences you're okay. dealing with. Nowadays, the most prevalent offending in Ireland would be, besides road traffic, which has been prevalent enough anyway, you're talking presently public order. The Public Order Act only came into being about 20, 30, less than 30 years ago. There was no Public Order Act up to then. That's the most po- prosecuted crime presently. Misuse of drugs, theft. They'd be the most common crime prosecutions that I would come across now. Whereas back then, you'd have um, uh, much less of that, much less crime you might have some thefts to some degree. You'd rarely get drug prosecutions because we didn't have a drug culture. Certainly in Cork and probably in Dublin kicked off maybe the late 70s, 80s. Cork, not until the 90s, 2000s. So you'd like to see a drug case back in the 1980s was as a rare bird, even possession of cannabis. And then you'd have, you know, you'd have, um, first of all, you'd have far fewer cases. The other actual difference, interestingly, from a practitioner's point of view is back then you had to be a better advocate And you had to be able to think on your feet better because you were going into the district court without the benefit of having disclosure of what the state's evidence might be. And that didn't change until there was litigation called the Gary Doyle case, which allowed or directed the police to provide defense material to the solicitor who would now be representing the accused. In my day, when I started out and what made probably may have made me a decent operator in terms of advocacy was I had to think on my feet what the police guy might be about to say, match that with my instructions, and then have to cross-examine on the hoof, and then still make sure that I wasn't going to answer the ask the wrong question. Because we, we all know, guys, rule number one in advocacy is don't ask the question to which you don't know the answer. So it, it really would prepare you for, you know, other things down the line and things that you would look out for now. But back then it was, there was an, an element of intuition and an element of, you know, kind of cop on. Yeah. What's the, can what's I, the way? Can I ask you just as, as a defence solicitor, and you've always been defence, mm, Frank, pretty much. Yeah. You've never worked for the state never in enough. terms of prosecution and stuff like that. I mean, to, to the public at large, they often wonder, say, how, how can you represent these guys? How, how, how do you, you know, how does your conscience allow you to represent people like that? Will, will, you, will you give us a few insights into the thinking of defence solicitors? You're just yeah, representing, isn't that it? Yeah, well, I mean, look, first of all, we have a constitutional system where people are entitled to a, a defence. I mean, if you look at the, the overwhelming power of the state against individual, that's a very important principle that democracy suggests that we should have, a, a, you know, a system of, that is fair. The, the, the important thing, like from a, you know, from a solicitor's point of view or a legal practitioner, you cannot be judgmental. I mean, if I become a judge of my own client, 
as to what the client may or may not have done, I'm in the wrong business. If I want to become a judge, I'll become a judge. I become a defender. And what a defender's position is, is assessment of evidence. Our system is evidence-based. It's not a system of morals and so on and so forth. Those matters feed into judgments that may be imposed by judges when people are guilty. The way I approach, you know, in cases of, of any given kind, actually, be they extremely grave, medium, low level, I, I, I assess the evidence. I may have to do that at the very, very beginning of a consultation where I might have to go into a guard station and advise somebody about rights to remain silent and so on and whether it's beneficial to make a statement or not. So therefore, I try to do, to do an early assessment, almost like a prediction of what the evidence might be. The other point in time at which you may then consider the evidence would be when a case has been brought into court, you're presented with, you know, statements or books of evidence and you assess it then. And in a very, very large number of cases, I never actually ask a client what the client's actual story is, sometimes never, and sometimes only at a quite advanced stage in the process where I'm saying to the client, look, here's the level of the evidence. It looks like you know, X, Y, and Z from the point of view of the prosecution case, you have a case to answer. And if you have a case to answer, then tell me your answer. If you don't have a case to answer, you do have a right to remain silent, but the evidence suggests you're going to be found guilty yes. unless you have an answer. That's, okay. the, that's the professional assessment that one has to do. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's an assessment of the strength Brilliantly of evidence. Explained. Brilliantly explained, explained, Frank. Okay, so we know you got. We, we know you have a number of high-profile clients. Can I can I ask you when did you get, let's say, a high-profile client that the papers started focusing on, and and suddenly you know it was slightly different because you had to deal with, let's say, media interest as well as just representing your client. The first case that became very public for me was not a criminal case. It was a tragedy involving a drowning uh, in the nineteen eighties, late eighties, in a place called Ballycotton where uh, a number of men who were in the service of the state as fisheries protection officers drowned in tragic circumstances and unexplained circumstances in many ways to this day, and where I represented the families of two of the four men who were fisheries protection officers and whose deaths became the subject of inter alia, a public inquiry. And it was a matter of some significant prominence at that time. And I wasn't long in my own business at the time, and it did attract a lot of sort of national, even to some extent, international attention because it was most unusual. There were question marks as to whether they were dragged down by submarine things and stuff like that. So that was one that I, and I remember having to go into court to do inquests and stuff and you'd be the focus of media attention and I had to make some commentary on the radio and I, you know, realised, oh, that's a pretty serious piece of work and it wasn't just from the point of view of the clients and the families of the late gentlemen but it was the public interest and I I suppose I, I began to learn to some extent not, you know, what, what... I began to learn communication with the media as a separate sort of tool of the trade, the need to be communicative. What does the public need to know about a matter of public interest as opposed to what needs to be, you know, kept private, kept confidential, privileged, and so on. That was the first one I remember. Okay. Those and are you part PR man then? Yes. Without yes, a shadow. Okay. And you, you, don't, you have no embarrassment saying that I at don't all. indeed, no. And I mean, I, but I hope my conduct in the public domain has been proper and appropriate. It, 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 that's not PR in the sense of it being 
you know, an abuse of a kind of a facility or portraying something in a way that isn't true or, you know, doing a kind of a snow job on it. It's actually a need to communicate because there is a legitimate need on the part of the public to know sometimes what what a defence position may be. And I mean, I've had it in at least two or three very, very big cases, which became enormous cases. Yes. I mean, I did a case in Middleton. It was a desperately tragic case in 2005 when a young man called Wayne O'Donoghue was involved in the initial disappearance and subsequent, you know, cover up as it was perceived. And rightly so in many ways of an event, which was like an international case. It was all in Sky News and BBC and all this business. And it was the most tragic, amazing, you know, case. It devastated the family of the young lad who was killed, Robert Houlihan. It was devastating for his mother, his father, his family, for the community. It then became devastating for Wayne O'Donoghue. I'm sure you'd know the case. Yes, I remember Wayne, was, mm-hmm. Wayne was prosecuted for murder. And uh, what, what that that case was such of, of such enormous public interest that it was necessary to be hugely conscious of what the media portrayal of the case would be like. And my view about the manner in which the media needed to be dealt with was quite simply that when the event occurred, when it was detected, when Wayne came forward as the offender and then inevitably was going to be prosecuted, I I knew, and I believe rightly so, that there was going to be a jury who was going to hear the case 12 or 18 or so months time down the line and who needed information, in fact, to counterbalance the portrayal that was going on, whether subtle or intentional or or otherwise, in other quarters. So it was the first case that I really realized something has got to be said, but very carefully, not to influence in any improper fashion or anything a jury, but just so that the jury might be aware that what they might be getting fed, which they were, in other quarters of the media, needed a counterbalance. So wow. so you effectively were looking at it as trial by media and you were defending your client in the media. Yes. And because, I mean, there's often the perception when you hear sort of solicitors going into the, the media to talk about their cases that they're assisting and promoting themselves. But but you, you, you very much felt that this was to, to your client's benefit. It wasn't a question of benefit. It was a question of fairness. And I think it was the first case that I can recall where there was such an an extraordinary level of public attention and there was potential, you know, I'm not saying manipulation in the pejorative sense, but manipulation in a sense that might have been unintentional, but it was certainly influential potentially that it was necessary to take a grip on the defence side and... You know, and and could that not be dealt with by, for example, sort of writing to the individual news outlets and saying Never. you have got this wrong, you no. have misportrayed this, and I will be reporting it to the judge or making a case for contempt. That, you, you 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 felt it was necessary to actually put the case forward yourself. Yes, absolutely, and it wasn't that I was discussing evidential matters because I wouldn't have even had evidence at a certain period of time, but it was it was the way it, it was really the way in which. I knew that a jury, whom we never could have known who they were going to be, because it was going to be 12 months down the line. But the minute Wayne, for example, was um, arrested 
and brought before the court. I remember it very well down in Middleton District Court of a very cold night in January. And there must have been 40 or 50 media personnel there. And I remember telling him how to walk, how to look, what not to say, what way to turn, what to do. It wasn't manipulative. It was just, remember, there are people who are genuine, ordinary, decent people who are going to be looking at you. They're going to be watching what's going on. When it, when it does come to evidence, jurors are rightly warned by judges, you are only to consider the evidence. And I hope that juries accept that as a direction or a charge from the court, and I believe they do. But there will always be the, the danger or the risk that perception may influence. Yep. And I've always thought that. And in the modern age, with modern media and modern, you know, communications and internets and so on, it isn't that you're that you're doing something at all improper. It's just that you're doing something that is necessary to ensure that a media perception is balanced. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, you talked about the Wayne O'Donoghue uh, trial, which was absolutely huge. Um, but we, can we talk about the Ian Bailey case? I mean, if, if Wayne was, was, was a huge story, this was completely off the charts and has been for the past, what, 20 years? And yeah, it's, it's been off the charts already. Can, can I ask you first how you got involved in, in defending Certainly. Mr. Bailey? Ian Bailey was uh, the focus of attention in, uh, I guess, late, to, late 1996. I was not his solicitor. I did not advise him when he was arrested. The late... Con Murphy, subsequently Judge Con, a friend of mine, was his advisor. And, and what happened was, I remember that I had done another high-profile sort of case in Cork, which ended a short time before the Ian Bailey case. And I think he must have heard about me or something, or somebody might have mentioned me. So this guy, Ian Bailey, rambles into my office in or about, let's say, March 1997. I knew who he was. He was not my client. He was Con's client. And he came into the office and I said, oh, there's that guy, Ian Bailey, and so on. And he was connected with that case, about which I hadn't much knowledge, actually, because I have enough to be doing. I don't get involved in other people's cases, believe me. I don't read cases in the paper. I have enough to be doing. But I knew about this from because it was a common knowledge kind of thing. In comes your man, sits down in the office, and I'm saying, oh, there's your man, Bailey. And literally, I started chatting to him. I knew absolutely intuitively that he had nothing to do with that crime from the minute I met him, because of what I spoke to him about, what he said to me, my knowledge at that time even then of criminal law and yeah, human nature and whatever you're having yourself. And his purpose in visiting was effectively, you know, no disrespect to my good friend, Con. Uh, it was, if I ever happened to be prosecuted, would you consider acting for me? And I said, I'm not sure if you ever will be. We'll cross that bridge if we ever have to come so, to it. So it was a case of having the chat before you came on board. Yeah. And of course, he was never prosecuted anyway. And Con did the legal business that was required to include Bailey being Ian Bailey being arrested. A year later, Con went to the station, advised. And again, he wasn't prosecuted. And then Con ran the civil actions against some number of newspapers. And I was watching it on the side, really. And then what happened is Con... Uh, retired and became a judge in 2003. At that time, there was a need 
for Mr. Bailey to appeal certain cases against some newspapers and he asked me if I would take it on. And that happened at the circuit court here in Cork, Indeed. isn't that right? And, and then we appealed that to the high court on circuit is the, is the process. And we had some success, even though people don't necessarily appreciate that because the case is so convoluted. But what then happened is, while that case was pending, and Ian Bailey's case was always in the media, I mean, it was just non-stop and ongoing, even before I got stuck in it. But then what happened is when I began to run the appeals, I got this, I mean, I was doing certain things and trying to piece things together. By the way, back in those days, I used to do a huge amount of, re- I used to go door to door, knocking, looking for witnesses, stuff that people wouldn't even dream of doing now in other cases. And I used to do my own thing. Anyway, I got this phone call out of the blue from none other than Marie Farrell. And a funny story, I'm sitting in the this office. This is the woman at the bridge. She's the, the star witness. So I'm in my office someday, 2005. I was aware of her and so on from other reasons, but I actually had forgotten her name even. And I'm in the office and I get a phone call. My receptionist says, there's Marie Farrell on the line. And I'm saying, well, who's she? Honest to goodness. And she said, she's a witness in the Bailey case. And I said, I should put her on. So she comes on for about 30 seconds. And I, I, I just like, you're the witness. And I said, I can't talk to you. And she said, but I need to talk to you. And I said, but I can't talk to you. I thought she was like setting me up or something. And she said, I would like to tell you the truth. And that was the first enormous crack that was, you know, tangible in the case. And I met her three times very carefully and got her legal advice of her own because I figured she could get prosecuted for perjury and all this. And she told me the truth of her dealings with the police. And of course, what happened about that was that was beyond sensational. But I had to you know, manage it very carefully and legally and properly. There was a guard inquiry into that and inquiry after inquiry. Then there was litigation, which we took against the state and it rolled on. And then there was the beyond sensational extradition, you know, contest that we had to raise against the state for extraditing. Can I just scroll back a little bit, Frank? I'm very curious about this. I mean, you seem to have developed a a relationship with Ian Bailey Bailey before you were his representative. Was that for a period of years? No, I used to, I used, he used, he used occasionally to contact me. I was not his lawyer. Okay. The, the, The tragic incident happened in December 96. I did not begin formally to represent him. Till 2003. 2003. Early into early '04, and did you break your own rules? I mean, your 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 opening statement was there I, after the, after the brief conversation we had. I knew he had absolutely nothing to do with it. Mm. That's what you just said. That's right. Was that was is that kind of breaking your rules where you don't kind of get into the issue with with your clients or he wasn't just my talk, client. He wasn't your client. Okay, okay. He was a okay. person who said, "If I need you, could I become your client?" And he had his own lawyer, and I said, "Of course." It was almost like, you know, if I ever need the particular expertise that you have, as it seemed to him, or as it may well be, could I avail of it? And I said, if you ever need it, absolutely. You have Con, who's a very able solicitor. Yes, absolutely. We all remember him as a circuit court judge, wonderful judge. Absolutely. And I said, look, and he did, of course, remain with Con, and rightly so. But it wasn't, not at all, it was was merely a future event that might occur, which didn't happen. Yes. But then can, other can things. I say, so, so when you came into the case, it was effectively seven years old, 1996 yep. to 2003, or maybe six years <coughs> Correct. or whatever. I mean, obviously it had been alive for a long time. Um, did you have any notion at that stage that we'd be still talking about it today? I mean, obviously high profile cases you'll always talk about, but that it was still ongoing, that there was still yep. issues in the yep. background, extradition, warrants, all that sort of stuff that's still yep. alive today. Never. I never, ever thought that it could be 
or become what it became. I never thought that you could punch such a large hole in the state's argument by a person switching completely from being the key witness for the state to being the woman who said that story was rubbish. It was a concoction to suit an agenda. I could never have envisaged um, the extradition events, but I began to get wrinklings of the extradition in 2008, which is a long time ago now, when I began to get communications to the effect that the state were being required to provide cooperation to the French authorities. So you're saying, by the way, in 2008, the state had clearly decided there was a key event occurred. I knew by 2008 that he was not going to be prosecuted because of the fruits of the Marie Farrell, you know, inquiry, etc. And in 2008, I realized that the French had been waiting in the long grass and that they were now going to start off the if you guys don't do it, we're going to do it routine. And they engaged with the state, you know, mutual assistance provisions, 2008 to 2010. And if all my years in practice, <laughs> if I can say it, after 42 years now, one of the most memorable events in my life was the night I got the call, 2010, April, to say, your client is being arrested to be to be removed to France, dark of night. Okay. I'm in Cork at home. Bailey is lifted, dark of night, down in Skull. And I knew he was going to get brought to Bandon Station. I drove to Bandon, parked my car. There was media there already because of the usual tip-off. I parked my car at a place past Bandon Station, one half, one in the morning, and next thing, in the dark of night, two cars whiz past, police cars, seven or eight police officers, Irish, with Bailey in the back of the car, the long arm of a foreign nation reaching into our country to remove one of our people to their country, and we're doing their bidding. Now, this is the third time he was arrested, and this time to be thrown out of the country and I just thought, this is frightening stuff. It frightened me. It, it, yeah. it is extraordinary. I mean, for people who don't know the, the, the details, I mean, he was arrested pursuant on a European arrest warrant. Correct. And basically, in circumstances where following a, an extensive guard inquiry, the director of public prosecutions in Ireland determined that they weren't in a position to prosecute him. Mm -hmm. And yet, the, well, certainly the state of below court level was prepared to cooperate in order that he pros be prosecuted in France, effectively to a different standard of proof, to put it Correct. mildly. You're quite right. In circumstances where our own authorities felt he couldn't, there was no prospect of securing a guilty conviction here. Correct. Um, which I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it's certainly something that should concern everybody. Sure. And, and it, it's it's curious because the, 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 the recent Islamic um the, the trials that that have been reported on recently in France, I mean, the standard of proof is so extraordinary that it seems Shocking. to involve, it seems to involve kind of effectively kind of um, victim impact statements before a jury, before before a determination of Correct. guilt. I mean, it's a very different standard. It's, it's frightening. Um, can, the whole thing you, was frightening. So how did you find, fight that extradition? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly if you've got about two years. <laughs> what I did was just on that night, I remember going to the police station abandoned right away because that's where he was brought you know, and saying, look, I'm here, I'll take care of you, I'll do the best I can for you. He was distraught. I was very well received by the by the then police because they were just doing 
somebody's bidding. I had to go to Dublin on the Saturday because imagine they brought him to court on Saturday. I got a parking, I got a speeding ticket on the way because I was trying to get up there so fast. I think we sorted that one out subsequently. And what I had to do was really um, just, I'd never done an extradition case. I just had to figure it out. I had a fantastic team of barristers and we had to get a, a French lawyer. We got that through an organization called Fair Trials International, which is like an Amnesty International type organization. They got me in touch with a, a French lawyer called Dominique Trico so that we might acquire a lot of French legal knowledge. So we had to do a lot of that. And then we had to put up our opposition and we did that. We had, there are lots of deadlines on the extraditions and they're very strict and, you know, because it's meant to work in a simplistic fashion. Big, long production there, up to the High Court, fought the case. And to my beyond astonishment, the learned judge decided that we were wrong and that he could be thrown out. So... That he could be extradited. Oh, yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was ordered to be Even extradited. though the DPP wasn't going to prosecute. The DPP had nothing to do with extradition. That's the whole point. The learned... High Court judge decided that he could be thrown out and ordered him to be removed. And the other thing that was frightening about it is that that judge had it within his gift to allow an appeal. There's no automatic appeal from an extradition. So that judge could have said, I'm throwing him out and I'm not allowing him to appeal, so good luck. So we had to justify an appeal application, which we did. We had three points to, for, to, to, to establish grounds of appeal. The most knife-edge case I think ever before that I had up to then done was Wayne O'Donoghue's verdict for murder or manslaughter. This was knife-edge to the point that this was a death sentence knife-edge because if Ian Bailey had been sent to France, he was going to die in France. So I've always regarded it as the only death penalty case I ever had, had done and hoped to ever to do. We had a hearing, argument, decision, judge. Point one, I reject it. Point two, I reject it. And I'm going, Jesus, he's gone. Point three. And I heard the words and I never, I never forget it. However. And the however was on point three, he has a justifiable argument to go to the Supreme Court. So I'm staying the extradition. You're allowed to go to the Supreme Court. And what actually happened was from the time when the High Court decision to extradite was made to the point of the, the Supreme Court decision sensational events occurred which were unprecedented in Irish law up to then and to this day involving DPP interventions, discovery of information, secret files, stuff that frightened me. We beat them out the gate in the, in the extradition appeal. The High Court judge's decision was completely reversed. We won it on all points of appeal. There were three and we saved them. And that was then, and that was 2012. But they still came back in 2016, and they came back again in 2019, and they were entertained on each of them. And how have you found the French to deal with in relation uh, to this case? Have you a relationship with them? No. Superior, okay. dismissive of our, our legal system, can, disrespectful. Can we move on to the High Court case? You know, your case was, Ian Bailey was before the High Court case. How many years ago was that? He, it started, it, it, well, yeah, we went for years. It was heard and concluded in 2000 and. 13, 14. But that was a bizarre decision, wasn't it? At the end, the judge, the, the judge found that the case wasn't properly before the court. Was, was that it? No, or? he allowed the case to go to the jury. Yes. But on such restrictive grounds. With very severe directions. Shockingly severe, I have to say. He's yeah. retired. Best of luck to him. 
the restrictions were so severe. There were 62 points of legal contention throughout the 60-odd days or weeks or months or whatever it was of the trial. 62 points where the jury had to go out and retire, where legal arguments were considered. We didn't win one of the arguments. And this is your action against Dungardishi O'Connor? Correct. We won none of the arguments. I mean, don't get me going. We we had such a case. We put And I was doing all this. You know, I, I remember watching a movie years and years ago with John Travolta. It's called a civil action or something. And John Travolta starts off a case and it's the best case of all time at the beginning. He's suing some big insurance company for some cancer in the community. And as the, as the big insurance companies start to fight him, his resources are dwindling. I think he ended up broke. I'm 10 or 15 days into Ian Bailey's cross-examination and I'm going, oh God, this is going to be difficult. Anyway, look, the bottom line is we put up a case that by any ordinary standard, I felt was winnable. Uh, the court but didn't, that didn't happen. And didn't the court, happen. in its wisdom, court, Frank, in its the wisdom, court, in its wisdom. In its wisdom. I, look, did you, ha- I, did I, you have a right to appeal in that relation to that matter? We appealed it and we didn't win it because, yeah. again, we were subject to restrictive grounds. By the way, I never give out about courts. I yeah. mean, I might give out in the sense that, look, you know, whatever. If I'm in the game... I'm in the game. Yes. I accept and, and I you're respect, representing your I client. respect the game. Can, can I go back to your relationship with Ian Bailey? I mean, again, I go back to, you know, when we talked at the start about your general, <coughs> you know, representation for clients, you know, that you kind of stand back and maintain a professional relationship. It sounds to me that you're almost buddies. Is, no, it, would not. that be fair to say? No, it's no? not. Absolutely not. He's my client. I have met him in social contexts or terms or circumstances. Two or three times I went to his, I think it was his partner's birthday some years ago back down in Glengariff. I, no, he's not. He's my client. I, okay. I would empathize with his personal difficulties and I would hope that I've always been, you know, properly conducted and, you know, civil and all that. But you don't become buddies with your clients. Okay. That's not, that's the wrong game. Okay. And what has it been like for him? Devastating. You know, all these years on. Devastating. His life is ruined by this whole thing. I did not know him before, so I can't say what he was like beforehand. I can't comment. But I know that when I met him in, you know, back in 1997, sorry, I could see damaged goods then. I saw him fundamentally damaged when he lost his libel cases in, you know, 19, sorry, in 2003. I saw him... Davis, I saw him encouraged when Marie Farrell told the truth in 2005. I saw him shattered in 2010 when he knew he was going to be thrown out to France. He was devastated. I saw him somewhat improved in 2012 when the Supreme Court saved him. I saw him encouraged when we ran the case up to 2014. Devastated again when he lost. And then further devastation in the later efforts to extradite him. His life has been, to me, Kafka-esque, surreal, devastating. Wow. He's okay. been ruined. All right. And and where stands the case at the moment? It's finished. It's finished. Because we have kept him in the country. The civil action has gone by the wayside. Look, that's life. The only circumstance in which the matter might resurrect itself is if the French try again. My own view is that the only way in which they might attempt to try, and I'd, they've never gone away is if they have some form of action that they might consider taking against Ireland for Ireland's non-application of what they would consider to be the provisions of the European Arrest Warrant uh, protocol that introduced the warrant system, the, the framework document, if they would ever consider that, perhaps. But the Supreme Court has secured his position 
as a, a free person in Ireland, but he'll never leave the country. Okay. Okay. Well, um, this has been absolutely fascinating, Frank. And after such drama and telling your story so well, uh, can can we ask him about his book? Or is that very It's a bit we, of a come down, I think. We, we, you know, we can't deviate C- from our. Can you can you find a script that is as dramatic as that? Uh, no, go on. Give us give us the book. Oh, the book is going to be called "The Dog Ate My Homework." Did you pick a book for us? I'm going to write it. It's going to be called uh, The Dog okay. Ate My Homework. I'll give you the movie if you want the movies, but the book, I, I mean, I've read many. You, you, you mean essentially... Yeah, a, le- a legal book that, you, that you'd recommend to our listeners. Or uh, the Trial by Franz Kafka, the way in which you can become ensnared in the legal process. And it's, jo- it's Joseph a, K. Somebody must have said something about Joseph K. Is that the opening line? Something like I, that? Yeah, it's many, many Something like that, yeah, yeah. What about a movie? Okay, I'm going to give you two or three movies for serious criminal lawyers. Um, Cape Fear, the second version with Robert De Niro and Nick Nolte. <laughs> and it is, Great. it is, the reason it's important for criminal lawyers, all criminal lawyers out there, budding lawyers, is it tells you what will happen if you mess up your client's case and don't play it by the book. Wow. Okay. It's sort of foreboding in that movie, yeah. yeah. For, for interaction with clients and getting information, it's not a criminal case a movie. It is The Silence of the Lambs. And it's the important engagement between Hannibal and Clarice. And it's fantastic because Hannibal knows every answer that she's going to give. He's testing her because he wants to validate his own uh, understanding of human nature, facts, you know, information. That's what that's about. I can safely say, Frank, you're the first to pick those two movies and, you know, and have described them brilliantly. Mark, I would say Frank is probably the closest we've had of one of our interviewees who could be in a Hollywood movie. I mean, who's going to play you, Frank? I mean, when when they do write that script, who's going to play you? Well, I've been dealing a lot with my very good new friend, Jim Sheridan, who's a movie producer and director who did My Left Foot and all those fantastic movies. And he's a fantastic And made a documentary in Ian Bailey. And he made a documentary and I've become friendly with Jim over the years and I have great chats with Jim. But I would say that Jim would fall around the place laughing if somebody thought they were going to make a movie about me or with me in it. It could be a Tom Cruise special. What do you think, Mark? (laughs) Anyway, another day's work. Come here. Frank Buttermer, um, thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thank you very, very kindly. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, solicitor Frank Buttermer, who gave us some great insights into the world of criminal defence law, Mark. Certainly when we're putting it. (laughs) So I saw you at times holding back, but anyway, there you go. No, it was fascinating, wasn't it? Very interesting. Really interesting. I I, I thought it was truly interesting. Uh, Can I say a huge thank you to him? Can I say a huge thank you to everybody in UCC for the way we have been looked after? We've done three interviews down here and it's been really terrific. Uh, I also want to say thank you to our producer Conal O'Morine for the wonderful help he gives us uh, and also to the, to, the, to the gang back in the Dublin South podcast studios for all they do for us in order to put, put this recording out and make it sound so good. So finally, parting comments, if there are any legal stories or any issues that you would like us to deal with, uh, please let us know and share our podcast, Mark. Isn't that it? That's right. Uh, and that's it so we just want people to share and to try and see if we can build up our listenership as always even though we're, we're happy enough with the way it's going I think we, we've got very good feedback so yeah far, we're yeah. doing alright we're doing alright okay so from me Peter Leonard and myself Mark Dalton thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the fifth court
Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.